0: podcast. podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Craft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you're listening to episode 135. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. We have an... Excellent lineup of podcasts for you this week from the SNN Podcast Network. Uh, Epic Guest Week is kicked off with at the Gladiator HC who joined Maj Don on Avoiding the Crowd podcast to have a, just really a good old-fashioned investing chat. You know, I'm happy to admit that despite having interviewing uh, them both individually and Maj on many occasions, you know, this is the best interview conversation that I've, I've heard from both of them. And uh, so, so to go listen to that episode, go to Uh You can also follow it on Apple at iTunes. And uh, go check out my Twitter stream and I tweet out the links to all those episodes. Um, also, this week's episode of In the Market Trenches with Gary and Eric is very fun. Frequent panelist and veteran himself, Stephen Keel, joined the boys to discuss an investing war story. The theme for this week, investing in NOL shells. A little sneak preview, uh, an NOL shell is essentially a company that previously incurred substantial losses over an extended period of time and currently has no business activity. So you're going to learn all about NOL shells and more on this episode, which is a lot of fun. So be sure to check that out on in the market trenches.podbean.com. Same thing with avoiding crowd. You can follow that podcast on, uh, on that website and then also on Apple and iTunes. So, uh, and of course, Tune in every Friday morning to watch the latest episode of the Investor's Roundtable. Every week, you never know who might be joining our panel or what topic will be discussed. So just you'll have to tune in every Friday to find out. Subscribe to the SNN Network YouTube channel to be notified, which is youtube.com snnwire Wire. Now for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Ben Clareman. Principal Portfolio Manager and Research Analyst at Cove Street Capital. Quick side note, I feel like I think I've met more LA-based investors during COVID-19 than than before, so uh, definitely an in-person happy hour once things normalize uh, a bit. Um, this was a fun chat with Ben, where we really dig into the many levels of being a contrarian investor. Um Value investors, for the most part, are natural contrarians uh, looking for great deals in the market, trying to find ways to understand what the market doesn't love and why makes for a good conversation. Thanks again for tuning in to episode 135 of the Planet Microcap Podcast. And without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Ben Clareman. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and joining me right now is Ben Clareman. He is the principal and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital.
1: Ben, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Doing okay. Thanks for having me. As I said, we're, you know, all of us are surviving through this period and hoping that we'll hit the, you know, the the place where we can thrive in, in no time.
0: That is for damn sure we're we're all on that train and uh you know just we're gonna get after it but uh, as a fellow los angelino it looks like uh you know we're it's it's getting a little better here right i I think i think i just saw the first day in three weeks we're down so let's slowly but surely slowly but sure that's right all right let's start with your background you know when and where did your passion for investing begin
1: yeah so i took a little bit of a circuitous route to investment management which in a lot of ways I think is a good thing um, because I did a, you know, a bunch of different things um, and, had, I mean, and had different experiences and exposures that hopefully will, will help me for the rest of my career. Um, so I'm originally from Arizona. Um, I went to the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School uh, with the primary intention of working my family's real estate business. My family's in commercial real estate in the, the New York Metro region. And, you know, from the, you know, from 14 years old, I was working in the office. Um, I thought this was my passion. I thought this was a path. I thought, um, you know, there was, you know, I I always liked the idea of finding um, either a unique property that people are, are, that were kind of underestimating or, you know, finding the right tenant for their building. I mean, there was always this like, you know, hint of. Um, looking for asymmetries or looking for things that people are missing. Um, and so this was before I even knew what value investing was. Um, and uh, so I went to school for that and you know, focused on real estate. And, you know, it's interesting, real estate, a, it's a, it's a background that you wouldn't necessarily think is, is well suited or perfectly suited for investment management, but really what you are as a landlord, you're assessing other people's businesses to figure out if they they would work in your building. Right. so it's like understanding their business, understanding whether they're how capitalized they are. Do they have other businesses? What's their experience level? Like so many of the things like evaluating a tenant is not so different from evaluating a, a company or a management team. Um, and so I, I did a lot of that. Um, and in addition to that, um, you know, investing in properties and stuff like that, there was always this returns focus, like, well, what can we get for it? So, um, there was a framework that I think works well for investment management. Um, so to make a really long story short, the inspiration came uh, from one of uh, a guy I was living with, was working for a hedge fund, handed me a copy of Ben Graham's book, The intelligent investor. That was it. That was a spark. I mean, I know it's a little bit of a cliche, cliche and I know that a lot, a lot of people have that story, but there was something about that book that spoke to me, you know, kind of, as I said about my real estate background, I was a value investor before I knew what a value investor was. Uh, and, you know without really truly understanding what it would mean to leave the family business and to get a job on the buy side with no experience, you know, I kind of just took a leap of faith, that passion and, um, just the the love of the research process and the, and the love of the, or, or, or of the intellectual challenge of, of, you know, beating a market, which is generally pretty efficient. That was just so attractive to me that I, I made the jump and I was lucky enough to get a job on the buy side. Um, not um not too well timed in early 2007 but that was it that was the spark there was just a a moment where i said i think i can do this for a living well Um, hold on what what
0: what what page from intelligent investor you know you know there must have been a page right come Um, on come on let's get you on twitter let's get that quote out there
1: i don't know if there was a page (laughs) or anything (laughs) I i just think it was the idea of that wow I already do this, you know, whether it's in my old baseball card trading days or whether it's in the real estate business, I'm already looking for undervalued assets and, you know, you know, have a, just like I bring a, a a calm demeanor, a certain conservatism, um, you know, a long-term outlook things that I think are really crucial to being a good value investor or investor in, 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 in any scenario. And so I felt like I had the, I had a lot of the hardware and the, the wiring for it. And then it was this, Hey, I could do this for a living and I could look at companies all the time and I can meet management teams and you know, I could travel to see factories. And I mean that, I mean that, that's the coolest part of our job. I mean, sadly, you can't right. do any anymore. but in, in theory that was the coolest part of our job. And, and the, the idea that that someone would pay me to do that was like, wow, this is, this is like, this is like a, you know, magic potion, right? You could love what you do. You could, and you get paid to do it and, 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 you know, work in an environment where, you know, you're constantly learning. And that, that's, that sounded to me relative to working for my family um, as a, you know, a, a path that was almost, I just had to take it. I had to, I had to to take that leap of faith and take it.
0: No, you know, it's, it's so interesting. There's, there's quite a few people on here that have, when, when I ask them that background question, they say, you know, I was a value investor before I really knew what value investing was. It's like, you, you know, as soon as they read one up on wall street or, you know, intelligent investor above its letters, that's when it's like me, you know, like you kind of, that spark goes off. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting, huh?
1: I think that there's, I mean, temperament's a big part of it. Um, I, obviously, your parenting and the environment you grew up on a, in has a huge impact on on who you turn out to be. But I still believe that there's something like hardwired to some degree about you know value investors. Um, I mean, we're a quirky bunch, right? If you meet us, we're a lot of introverts um, within this group. I mean, I know a lot of value investors, especially in Southern <laughs> California, and we're we're a quirky bunch, right? And 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 that's you know i think there's it's not enough to be that to be a successful investor but i do think to some degree there are some traits whether that's you know being conservative as i mentioned or being you know kind of like being able to and being a contrarian right most people don't have the ability to stand out from the crowd like there is they they feel physical pain when they're standing out from the crowd when you know value investor to be a good value investor you, you have to be able to be a contrarian and you have to be very comfortable being a contrarian you have to look for areas to be a contrarian and so these are things that um obviously nature and nurture both contribute to but i i do think that I, like from a very early age like i was looking for things that other people you know like when the tide's going one way, I was willing to go the other way. And and that's been, you know, and that's why, you know, Ben's Graham, Ben Graham's book and this this profession spoke to me to, to such a large degree. Well, you know,
0: it's an interesting part of that. And, and this is something that, you know, when I talk to family members, when they ask me what I do, or, you know, when I say what value investing is, and, and I say very similar things in that, you know, generally speaking, it's very easy to explain it as like, well, try and think like a contrarian. You know, things, try and think about things that are, you know, maybe really hot right now, you know, what's not so loved. And sometimes that bit, understanding how to think like a contrarian is really difficult. You know, it's very difficult sometimes to think about, okay, think opposite of what's hot right now. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, like that's something that you have to really learn and teach yourself.
1: Well, I mean, it all goes down to behavioral biases, right? And so. You think about um, you know there's something called the confirmation bias where uh, everything you you know w- when you when you when you believe something whatever it is uh, and you see you you seek information and, and everything all the information you see only confirms that and so it is physically painful to look to, 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 to challenge your own beliefs and to say no I need to look for disconfirming information and this really specifically speaks to when you're looking at a security right especially as you know we're not we're, we're a long only firm. We're not long short. So we're only looking for things that are going to go up in theory. Um, and theory. so, you know, there's, once you're excited about an idea and, you know, it, it fits all of your criteria, business value and people, you know, you, there, there, there's another bias is the endowment effect. Like you kind of own it and you feel this like, well, yeah. And then, and there's a sunk cost fallacy where like, well, I also look, I've done all this work. I've, you know, I, I, and, and like, why? And, and if, if I've done all this work, then it should be in the portfolio. Right. And 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 then you own it more and you're more likely to defend it. Right. And so it's really hard to, to, to look at one of your own ideas and be like, well, what's the contrarian side of this? What's the other, where, what am I missing? Let's find disconfirming evidence. Um, and so it's not, there's, there's multiple levels to being contrarian. I think in an in, in investment, one, it's, looking at things that other people aren't willing to look at whether it's for structural reasons or for you know just some kind of like it's not hot or it's on love those kind of things and then within your own process you need to be a contrarian because you need to be able to put the hat on you know one you know some days you're the long analyst and some days you're the short analyst and and um i think to be a good and and consistent investor you have to be able to look at both sides of, of of any investment and so you know there's this um You know, I think that's where it comes down to temperament and it comes down to, um, you know, a a mental flexibility that doesn't doesn't come naturally to people. And I'll give you a little anecdote is that I've got and we can get into our process, but our process has the Mm -hmm. contrarian aspect to it where we have two longs and one short on every idea. So we we have a devil's advocate baked into our process. And I've had some friends talk to me about like, well, I love that idea. Um, how can we build that into our process? And I was like, okay, do you have any of that in there now? Do you have the, you know, a person whose design, whose job it is to criticize his his or her colleagues and the people, and, and my, my friends were like, well, no, we don't have that. Well, good luck, right? It takes years That's, to build up, right? Yeah. Because, you know, it, it just think about your normal your normal job, like, you know, let's, let's say you're not in the investment management industry. Let's say, you know, you work for an IT firm, like how often are you criticizing your, your your people's ideas and saying they're stupid and saying that, that you should do the complete opposite, right? Like that does, it's just not part of the culture and it's not part of the process. So, um, you know, we build that in intentionally, but I, but as I say, like you to, to, to do it consistently and to do it well, and to have people not have their egos hurt, um, to, for people to embrace the process it takes a while and you have to build yep. it over time. Um, absolutely and, and so that's you know it's an, it's an evolution and and no process is ever perfect but we're nine years into trying to perfect that no, I like I like that. That might be the title for
0: the show this this episode is. The multi-levels of being a contrarian investor. Yeah, I like that. I like, I like that. that. I like that. That's a good. That's a good That's a good ring right there. So so Ben, one, one quick follow-up before we get into your process and strategy a little bit later, you know, you mentioned that uh, the fund is a more long-only strategy and this is something that I brought up a little bit on on the show and that's been talked about how um you know, most investors on here do a lot of due diligence on, you know, many different ideas and go down the road and spend a ton of time and, and doing it and you know some some of those investors have a short strategy as well so that even if they're looking at a, strat, at a at a company that may not totally fit their criteria but might be a good short they have that embedded in like okay we'll, we'll short this you know how have you been able to get to the point where you're like okay i'm okay with doing all of this groundwork for an idea that i might not necessarily end up taking a position in. you know, what, what, how did you get to that process or, or to that point?
1: That's a good question. And, and it's definitely an evolution. So let me describe how I think about investment management and, and how I think about time allocation. So I, I do think that time management is one of the, I don't know, top three most important, um, traits or skill sets that you can or, or to, uh, that you could cultivate as an investor because there are thousands of stocks out there and there's always more than you're ever gonna be able to look at in your entire life, right? And so triaging and figuring out what to spend time on um, is very difficult, right? And because it's not like, it's not like, you know, anybody rings a bell interesting and these other things are not interesting, right? Like it's, you have to do a fair amount of work to even get there. Um, and so you know, I think the first thing you have to do um, is uh, have a very, uh, be willing to use what we call the too hard bin very liberally. And what the two-hard bin is, um, and this goes back to a Buffett idea of, when, you know, of a company where you read the 10K and you have to read it three times to have any idea what they're doing. Right, it's so complex, and it just seems like yeah, it looks it, it probably looks cheap, but it's so complex that you're not even sure how they're making money, or you're not sure, you know, what their what the business model is. If it's that difficult, put it in the too hard bin, and the too hard bin is is it, it becomes a list of companies that's just it's not worth your time, right? And so I think that's that's one thing you have to do. The second thing you have to do is you have to be willing to um, cut your process off. When it gets to you know, don't go through the entire process to figure out that this isn't something you want to own. So first of all, you have to have some kind of thought of like this is a kind of stock that I would like to own in my mind. Um, and and I, I mean I'm speaking for most of Coast Street, you know, because we have a, and we can talk about this, but we have a, a you know, we have a, a a paradigm where we we invest in both Buffets and Grams, with a Buffett being a compounder with a moat that's getting more valuable every day, and a Graham stock being more of a a cheap okay to decent business that will benefit from mean reversion um, um my in my evolution i've started to focus more on buffett stocks um just because i i sleep better at night with businesses that i know are getting more viable every, every day so um you know if you get to whatever you're three days into a research process and you don't think that this fits with what the complete you know this thought of what a buffett stock is in your mind you got to be willing to cut it short Right. And, and, and realize that that, and to get your question a little bit, you're still building intellectual capital, right? You've, you've, you've read the K, you started a model, you know, you've talked to management potentially um, and you have notes on that. And it's, in, you know, it'll be in your files forever. And the other thing is maybe there's something about this particular business, whether the way it's run or it's, you know, the, where its plants are or the management team that is not interesting to you. But what if the industry is really interesting? And so we see that a fair amount, whereas we're doing work on one company and there's something about it, whether it's the balance sheet, for example, like, well, I'd love this business, but it's five times levered. And that's not really, we're not really comfortable with that or um, industry structure looks great, but this management team clearly, you know, is stealing from you. And so, but, and then you look and say, well, who, who do they compete with? Um, and sometimes you're looking at them, you know, you find a mediocre business. You're like, wow, these guys are awful. Who's, who's eating their lunch? And you look across the aisle and you see their competitors. And so my point is that, you know, as long as you are being diligent and doing deep research and unearthing information um about a business, uh, especially if it's, you know, n- you know, outside of what the sell side tells you and what management tells you, you know, you're building intellectual capital that you can use going forward and with other ideas. Um, and then maybe the the third thing is um You have to be okay, I think, to be a good value investor, especially a value investor when it comes to better businesses. You have to be okay doing a lot of work, getting to a point where you're willing to to make an investment decision and wait on valuation. So you say to yourself, I really like this business. I really like the management team. The value is just exorbitant. um, And I'm willing to wait until value gets to X, whatever X is. And so you do the work beforehand, and you figure out whether you want to own it. Who's running it? Um, is it getting more valuable every day? Set a price target, and then be patient because the market will give you opportunities. Like who would have thought March 2020, right? Where great Buffett businesses for about a two-week period, or maybe even ten-day period, were were cheap again, right? And and that has not been the history <laughs> in in recent times. So you know you have to be you have to be willing to do the work beforehand um and and not feel like it's a waste because you didn't buy it that day if you spend and so we have what's called the buffet list is a, bis, a, a list of businesses that we love to lo- own at some point um and the list is created almost irrespective of valuation right these are just great businesses and just assume that valuation will fluctuate at at times and you will have opportunities and so if you've done that work um, and you have a list of I don't know ten or twelve companies that you'd like to, that you love to own that you are I don't know three or four days from making an investment decision on, you know when you hit a market environment like we had in March, you can just pounce on it. Um, and so I see that as opposed to like I, I see that as like a waste. I think I think that is like one of the most productive uses of your time that, that you can actually put to, you know that you could actually you know actually spend. I couldn't agree more. I I really could.
0: I mean, and and I think you, you, the three points that you made just now about why it's still important to do the work. I mean, you're, you're just, even if you haven't been doing it for years, actually more importantly, if you haven't been doing it for years, it's good to be doing that because it's going to help you develop that thesis that you've been, you know, everyone's telling you and listening to on this podcast, like, Oh, it takes a long time. Like, no, go look at some dogs. It's important to, Cause now you'll be able to tell, you know, just the crap from, especially microcaps, be able to tell the crap from, you know, Oh, this, this is actually a real business.
1: Um, yeah. I mean, there's no way to develop pattern recognition that's required to be a good investor without doing the work. And like, why is Buffett so special? He can read a 10 K and you know, in five minutes, think about realize whether this is a business that he'd want to own because he's looked at so many and he can read a proxy statement. And in five minutes, know whether or not this is a management team that he would like to partner with. And so, um, and, and, you know, young analysts always ask me about like, how did, how do you get there? And I'll tell you, there aren't any shortcuts. Pattern recognition comes only through doing the work and having read hundreds or thousands of of, of financial statements. And then also meeting management teams and trying to figure out whether these people are lying to you, whether they're stealing from you or whether they're lying to you. Right. And, and so, you know, I, I don't, there, are, I, I, I hate to say it. Um, and, but it's, it's a good thing in certain ways that there just aren't any shortcuts in this business. Yeah. You want to be, if you want to be successful and you want to be good at. It.
0: I don't know, Ben, to be fair, you know, look, we could years from now be in the matrix where, you know, they just plug in a program. And then, you know, in 10 hours, you're able to have all the pattern recognition you want. I mean, to be fair, right. If, yeah. if they're having to be and, listening to this.
1: Yes. And, and we, if, I will say that, um, you could, you could have a computer and AI recognize, recognize patterns and say, this is like something that worked really well, you know, 10 years ago, very, you know, and, and we have whatever hundreds of data points or thousands or even hundreds of thousands of data points, but computers never going to be able to tell you whether management's stealing from you or whether they're actually understand capital allocation, right? Those are the things that still require people. Um, and so you know, I think there will always be a role, maybe a diminished role, but a role for people in this market. Um, and and the truth of the matter is, the more people who are indexing or outsourcing to an ETF or you know relying on an algorithm, uh, the fewer people who are actually thinking and doing the diligence and visiting the factories and talking to you know talking to former employees. Right, the, the smaller that pool of people are, it is. Sorry, excuse me the better the opportunity will be for people who are willing to do the work and for the, the, the diligent value investors who are still around, um, you know, in this, you know, in the matrix. Yep. You know, hey, look, night. look, as long as there's people involved, there's always a, a chance for uh, flaws because yeah, human nature. Biases. I mean, those, those are not going to go away. Um, and, and so that's, that's why, you know, especially in small and micro cap, that's why I always think it's an evergreen opportunity, right? There just will, there will always be smaller companies that are underappreciated, underloved, misunderstood um and there's as long as we have public stock markets um and everyone's focused on tesla and apple and netflix there will be thousands of other little companies that no one's paying attention to um and that they're biased for for some whatever reason well it's post bankruptcy or you know it doesn't trade that much or you know it's, an, it's a they've got an ab shareholder structure and they can't touch anything like that there, there are structural reasons why people won't invest in it I mean, those are biases that can be, that value investors can take advantage of. I,
0: you know, I, I wonder this every single day, like what that world, that post-structural bias world looks like in the small micro nano cap space. It's fascinating to think about because I really, I, I'm really curious, like what would happen if, if like the next generation of investors comes in and like, what, who cares? It's illiquid. I don't care. Or, you know, post banks Whatever, you know, like actually they, they don't care about that because they're just looking at the underlying businesses. You know, I, I don't know. It's a very interesting world to imagine. I wonder what that could look like. I don't know. What do you think? What could it look like? I mean, I know, I'm asking you I'm asking some, some esoteric questions. We're going I mean, esoteric think, today think, on the
1: show. The other way, I think there are institutional reasons why people focus less on smaller companies, you know, especially as all of the money kind of in the industry funnels up to the largest funds right? And, you know, whatever, like what, or private equity, right? All the money's going right. there. There's just few, there's fewer and fewer smaller investors out there who are willing to cap their assets. And, you know, especially a micro cap, like sure. if you're a micro microcap strategy, we, you know, you probably, 200 million is probably your cap, you know, at, at Cove Street, we talk about our small cap strategies, a 3 billion in, in terms of total assets that would be, you know, that we could even run our strategy if, if, if at that right. size, you know? And so, I, 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 as I see it, people, the the bigger just getting bigger. um, Every, a lot of other people, a lot of people are indexing. It just seems like fewer and fewer people are focusing on this world. So I think, you know, people always ask about, like, well, you know, why can't, why, you know, Buffett talks about how he could, you know, whatever, you know, outpace the market by hundreds of basis points every year if he was running money, you know, if if he, you know, if, if he, there's no comparison of what Buffett was doing in the 1960s, right? There, there just are nowhere near as many inefficiencies, right? And it's not just a so, but running a small amount of capital, there still is the opportunity, I think, to outperform. You just have to be willing, you have to be patient, you have to be willing to accept the liquidity. Um, you have to do a fair amount, a lot of diligence on management because with smaller companies, you just you have to be really, really careful, I think, to. Yeah. With, partnering with because small decisions are much more impactful than they are, you know, for a larger company. But yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I, we, we, we are, our, our, you know, our firm goal is to be the last value investor standing in small and micro. And, and, and then we'll, you know, we'll, then it will be just like you know, <laughs> Buffett, the, the, the amazing pickings that Buffett had with his hedge fund in the sixties. And you know what, you know, we're, sadly, we're getting there kind of quick, quicker than quicker than you would have expected. Yeah. All right, well, you know,
0: let's get back to the Cove Street story. So, you know, we went off on a tangent. That was a good tangent. I, like, I Hey, we could go tangents all day. Let's do it. But um, let's get back to the Cove Street story. Um, you got your first job on the buy side, you know, filling that gap from there to then founding Cove Street. And I'm going to merge my next question with this is, you know, once founding it, what, what was the investing philosophy and strategy that you wanted to implement with Cove Street?
1: So um, I got my first job on the buy side in 2007. Uh, as most people will remember, that was you know kind of the beginnings of the financial crisis that really culminated in March of 09. Um, So it was a very difficult environment to raise money for a new fund that I, like the one I was working for. Um, and so when um, when that fund wound down because it was just it was impossible to raise assets, um, I kind of looked around and I said, you know, I have a passion for this. I have a little bit of experience. What I really need is, is more of a background um, in accounting, in strategy, corporate finance. Because I mean, I t- you know, I t- those had been classes that I had taken in undergraduate business school, but it just hadn't been my focus. Real estate was my was my really my focus then. So um, I ended up going to business school at UCLA, um, and that got me out to the West Coast. And so it was 2011. I was graduating. Uh, the job market for investment management wasn't, uh, probably a lot better than it is today, but I mean, it was probably a step up from 2009, but it wasn't that much better in 2011 versus 09. Um, and, um, you know, it's a story that, uh, I don't know if very few people can replicate, but I did, I had started an investment blog called the inoculated investor in 2009. Um, I was the guy, there was one or two of us out there, but I was the guy who went to the Berkshire meeting, took notes. And posted my notes on the blog um this was the days before there was yahoo streaming this is the day before there was cap iq transcripts to know what buffett and munger said you had to be there um, and so there was a small window four or five years maybe even six years where you know there was you could you know you could have almost like proprietary content that no one else would have because no one else was silly enough to sit there for seven hours taking notes And so that was my claim to fame and that was the blog's claim to fame. And I met a lot of interesting people that way. And it was, you know, for business in business school is a really good way to network and keep my name out there um, because business school's all encompassing in a lot of ways. And so um, it's, you just, it's really hard to continue to do research and and it's it's really hard to balance everything while you're, while you're going through that process. So um, the blog was a great way to, for me to, to keep, keep focused and, Involved in value investing, um, and then uh, Jeff Bronchick, our founder of, at Cove Street, was starting Cove Street. Or was starting a new firm in 2011, uh, and uh, someone who knew my blog, but I'd never met, actually recommended me to Jeff. He said, "I, don't, I haven't met this guy, but no one." You have to meet anyone who's crazy enough to sit there and take notes for seven hours, um, and you know I met Jeff, and he'd actually decided to hire. He had decided to hire someone else, and he changed his mind when he met me. And so that was nine years ago. Um, and so Cove Street has been in business for nine years. Um, you know, long-term value for investors do a lot of work. Um, I mean, we can talk about the philosophy, but it's really think long-term, be willing to act. You know when 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 you see the opportunities and 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 concentrate in your best ideas um and you know it's nothing about the process has changed i'll give jeff a lot of credit i mean like it's evolved right but it's but that's very different i mean processes should always evolve and get better you should recognize additional biases and you should add aspects of your process to mitigate those biases but the foundation hasn't changed um and you know we, we come to work every day you know, focused on doing deep diligence, focused on partnering with people who, you know, we, we can trust, um, for figuring out what our contrarian investment premise is, you know, so that getting back to that being being willing to be a contrarian, um, you know, I think, and then one other thing is finding as many outlets as you can to find and to get information that is outside of what, you know, is in the Wall Street sphere. And I'm, not obviously not talking about non-public information what i'm talking about is you know talking to former employees going to industry trade shows just finding chatter and um talking to people who you know are in the industry or understand the business but don't don't talk to sell side analysts and they don't you know they, they don't you no one hears their thoughts or opinions and you get a better i mean i think we always say the best thing you could ever do is sit at the cafeteria at the lunch table, you know, the lunch table at the cafeteria with the, at the company, right? Cause you'd hear what people were talking about, but you're never going to get that close. Um, but you can get close by talking to former as you, by talking to industry experts um, by visiting the company you can get, you know, and, and walking the plants, you can get a sense of who these people are. What does the business look like? Um, and, you know, do a lot of work and then be willing to be waiting and wait, you know, when, when, when until value matches up. Right. So find business and business and people that you really like. Um, and then wait for value. That's, that's really the, the, the core of what we've always done. And, and, you know, nine years in not a lot changed.
0: That's awesome. That's I mean, Hey, you stick to your guns, you just stick to what works, you know, and you deviate a little bit based on the time period. Right. I mean, that's more or less it.
1: Yeah. I mean, we, we try to be mentally flexible. And I'll I'll tell you that low interest rates and multiple expansion uh, in the businesses we wanna own has made it very challenging to own a portfolio of companies um, that fit all of our criteria. Now, one of the benefits of being concentrated is that you just don't need that many new ideas. So I'll just give you an example. So in our small cap strategy, it's 30 to 39 names. So that's, that's pretty concentrated. Um, you know, especially when you're comparing to the Russell 2000, which has thousands of stocks. Um, so we're always going to look very different from an index and that is by design. We built, we build our portfolios with an index agnostic perspective. Um, so 30 to 39 names and small cap in the, in the strategy that I co manage our small cap plus strategy, which is our, which is basically our Smith strategy. Um, it's 20 to 29 names. So we concentrate on our best ideas. Um, and my point is that you don't need that many new ideas every year. So if you're investing in Buffett stocks that are getting more valuable every day and you're holding on to um, you know, you, you know, most of them for, for three to five years, you don't have a lot of turnover. And so even when something gets bought out or there's an idea that doesn't really work anymore for some reason, whether there's been a change in capital allocation or there's been a change in the industry or you were just wrong in your investment premise, you, know, you only need a couple new ideas a year. So that's you know in terms of like how do you people ask us all the time how are you operating in an environment where low interest rates and in, this, in, in, in addition to the U.S. being the only place anyone's willing to invest uh, apparently you know as as that drives up multiples how do you how do you continue to find ideas and it's really about being contrarian willing to look in other places where other people aren't um, you know having worked on a bunch of businesses that are on your buffet list that just whatever the market hands you at certain times. Um, but then it's about being concentrated and, 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 and as opposed to owning 50 names, well, I, you know, I just add, just own 25 at, a, at twice the position size. Um, and, and so that's, you know, I, I don't envy anyone who has to own hundred stocks, right? Cause I don't think there are a hundred great ideas out there at all times. Right. I'd, I'd rather focus on 20 to 29 really good businesses that are getting more valuable every day. Um, and, you know, at, at times, you know, or, and have a bench of other businesses that we've done work on that we'd like to own. Um, and that's, you know, that's for value investors, given the, the, the massive underperformance of value versus, versus growth over the last decade, that's, that's about all you can do. Wait for some kind of mean reversion, wait for, for, you know, the sun to shine on value investors. Um, again, cause it, it will happen. You know, I, I just yeah. feel like, you know, I, I'm not going to predict when, but this, there's just so many things that feel like you know, early two thousands to me, you know, when you see the IPO market, this hot, when you see, you know, SPACs coming every day, you know, raising billions of dollars, like they're just, I don't know. I I, I don't want to be, I, I never want to be um, in the position of predicting that what's going to happen or when it's going to happen, but, but it sure feels like there's a speculative fervor out there that is similar to what we saw, you know, early two thousands with the tech tech boom and tech tech bust
0: yeah no absolutely I mean look if you follow T- Toby Carlisle at all on Twitter, he'll be the first to tell you and and you'll see <laughs> he's he's been he's been uh, uh been really at the forefront letting everybody know that and showing the data so yeah, well, definitely, to be
1: fair, Toby's talking his own book though love toby uh, but he's talking his own book look i I email with Toby weekly and we just lament over the fact that, that the value's gotten crushed relative to growth and that you know we just there needs to be some mean reversion and and whatever Cliff Asness is out there saying that stocks are you know, like <laughs> it was like the, the 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 disparity between growth and value that like a 97th or 99th percentile it's 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 wild out there you know the the, the spread um, you know and and so people you know people are always asking us you know how does it how do you change does that change your framework at all does that change your process and the answer is absolutely not right we're not gonna we're not gonna lower our our, our return thresholds we're not gonna invest in different businesses. You know we're going to stick to what has always worked, which is a a disciplined process that has a margin of safety focus, um, and you know, and and patience, right? For because just like I said, nobody last November would have predicted March, right? There could be another March anytime soon, right? And and you need to be in position to put your capital to work, um, and and and. Frankly, sell thing, sell anything in your portfolio that you don't think is 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 going to be there for five years, and buy something that you think will be there for five years. Absolutely. I mean, you
0: know, this actually, I was going to ask you this a little bit later, but I might as well ask now. And I'm and I'm already going to kind of guess your answer based on everything you said thus far. But I mean, how how has been your investing mentality? How how has that been during this since March? You know, mm-hmm. as I, I don't think, I, I'm going to assume your strategy didn't alter at all, but you know, the mentality changed. Did you have to make some kind of adjustment based on what was happening? You know, what, what was your thought process there?
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, we're still going through it. I mean, yeah, so I mean how's it, it still going? Knows if it's over, but if, if you go back to the late March, early April timeframe um, you know, there was a lot of information coming at you really fast. Um, there was a lot of uncertainty about the severity of of the virus, there was clearly, as there still is, a lot of uncertainty around the longevity of its impact, um, and so our our senses. You had we had to establish within our process a framework for um, not for, for evaluating the next whatever call it three to five years, um, mm-hmm. and so in order to mitigate a bunch of conversations that uh, about how long this was going to last or how impactful it was going to be, right? We just, you know, we all, like I I joke that everyone in March and April, and even now, was an epidemiologist. Even if you're, even if you have no background in it, you had to be to some degree. Um, But, you know, to to mitigate a bunch of, um, you know, unproductive conversations about, you know, trying to predict the next three years, we established this framework that said, all right, uh let's assume that 2020 is basically canceled for our companies 2021 is a partial recovery 2022 is a full recovery so it's basically relative 2019 so it's a three-year recovery let's so let's just use that as our baseline you know we didn't know a whole lot and we still don't know a lot but that was that seemed like a conservative um framework from which to approach the markets at that point and so that's what we did and we employed that framework um and so anything that was trading at a material discount to intrinsic value, even based on a three-year recovery situation, was a candidate for investment, and assuming we'd done the work. I mean, there's all, all the other things that have been going on, but, you know, it, we, it was a, that's a framework that wouldn't necessarily have existed outside of COVID, right? That was just a, we need to do something right? To make sure that we're not spending hours discussing, you know, w- whether it's going to be 2023 or 2025, or we're going to get a V-shaped recovery, right? You, those things were unknowable, right? And so you can only look at a probability weighted distribution of like, okay, so, you know, there's X percent probability of a V-shaped recovery. There's, you know, there's an X percent percent the percentage uh, uh, chance of there never being a recovery. And then everything else is in between. And so we took three years as, um, a conservative, but probably you know, within a ba- you know, probably within you know the the meat of the distribution, right? That would that would fit within there. Um, so that was that was how we you know mentally pivoted to to um, to attack the the opportunities we saw. And we're contrarians, right? I mean, so that that was the other thing is that this is an opportunity in an environment that we've been waiting for. Now, clearly, the the devastation that this has caused in terms of people's lives, you know, whether that's, that meaning, you know, people passing or like, you know, losing their jobs, like that's not that we certainly weren't waiting for that.
0: No, of course that, not.
1: that wasn't what we're talking about, but in, in an environment where people were uncertain yeah. and they were indiscriminately selling things, that is the environment where, where we get excited. Um, you know, and so we, we set this conservative framework up um, with a focus on 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 that three year recovery plus balance sheet, right? Saying, like, we need companies that have the ability to survive for the next three to five years. Right. We don't want in, in immediate liquidity issues. Right. We we had the with a thought that most lenders are going to do we're going to do exactly what they did, which was kick the can down the road. Eliminate covenants, give people waivers, like right? I mean we knew that was going to happen. I mean there was there was no way that the lenders wanted the keys to all of these businesses. Right. And so that was i think that was an it was a useful framework to say we're not going to just invest in a bunch of businesses that could go bankrupt and hope that their lenders will, will will give them waivers but it was but i think it was valuable to say in most scenarios if this is not if this is just a liquidity issue and not a solvency issue lenders are going to kick the count down the road and that's precisely what we've seen i mean if you look at if you look at the covenant waivers of some you know like event stocks like live nation or f1 f1 racing i mean like they've gotten their covenants pushed out to 2022 right so 2020 is canceled 2021 is canceled and then you know 2022 is the next covenant date so you know balance sheets were really important to us um so you know set a conservative framework go you know focus first on what you own make sure that that's not going to hurt you as you're looking for new ideas you know, pull up the buffet list, see what's on that bench. Um, and then what we didn't do, and I think this is, this is instructive is we didn't, we didn't spend time. And this was conscious on a bunch of businesses that we hadn't really worked on be- before, right? So focus on what you own so that it cause, cause what you, what you don't own can't hurt you. Right? So since we're margin of safety downside focus investors, right? First rules don't lose money. Second rules. Don't forget the first rule right? Like let's, let's focus on what we own, make sure that's not going to be, you know, be a problem. Secondly, go to that bench, that Buffett list is businesses that we've worked on that you, that you've spent a lot of time on, you know, the management team, you were just waiting for value, but we didn't just pull up a 10 K and say, Hey, you know, like I've heard of this business. It sounds interesting. It's down a whole lot. I don't think in an environment like March or April, it's productive to just start brand new research. If, you know, assuming that you do a month of diligence on a company in general, before you buy it, I just don't think it's productive because you're never going to, you're not going to get access to management in this environment. You're never going to get to go visit them, visit their factories. You're not going to get to go to trade shows, you know, like all of the things that really, that that we do to try to distinguish ourselves on a research basis weren't available to us. So, um, you know, I think that was a, you know, getting to time management, which we talked about in the past was like, let's, you know, this is all within our existing process. But let's just focus on the things that we have been in our circle or sphere. That that like so, if, if this is our circle of intellectual capital at the firm, which you hope grows over time, let's stay within things that we're in there. Um, and so again, since we have a concent- we run concentrated portfolios, you don't need that many new ideas. Um, and so we, I, you know, I think we aggressively put money to work. You know, and you never do it fast enough, and you never call bottoms, and you there are things that we, you know, you miss, right? And that's always going to be the case. You have to be, that's, you know, I tell you investors all the time, you have to be okay with having missed something, right? Because as a diligent judicious investor, you should be passing on most things. There aren't, if you're looking at 10 ideas, like the chances that all of them are going to be good is basically zero. You should be be passing on nine out of 10 ideas.
0: Look, this is, you're the perfect person to ask this as the, 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 the Buffett historian,
1: I don't know. The, I don't want to. I don't want, to, I, don't want to, I don't want to say that because there, there okay. are there are people that, who I know who are know way more about Berkshire than I do. All
0: right, all right. As as the original transcript writer yes. of of uh, before the live streaming, can you explain to young investors right now why Buffett was sitting on the sidelines during that time period? Because I feel like you might have a good answer for this, and I think it's also very important for those who you know are now you know new traders to uh, go, you know, I think that's, I think that's a good thing to, uh, to, to
1: discuss. So I'm going to say something that's slightly heretical, um, and, um, it's not meant to, 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 you know, denigrate Buffett at all. I think it's possible that this was an out of sample of event for even him and Munger, I mean, you know, Munger's close to have been investing during the uh, 1918 pandemic. He's not quite that old, but you know, this was out of sample for them. They'd, they'd never seen anything like this. And so. Um, I think one question, you know, one issue was that they just, they weren't sure how to handicap the future. You know, they, you know and, and Buffett talked a lot at the meeting about bet on America and all those things. And, and it's all, we've always bounced back. And I'm sure that was part of his thinking. But I think there was, I think anybody who tells you that they weren't frozen for at least a few minutes during that time is lying to you, right? Number one, and this, and, and now it's, you now given what the market's done, it's really hard to remember all this. But number one, right, stocks were getting punished. at at a huge clip two right there was the question of what is going to be the impact on the economy cash flow stocks like all the you know and and for how long and third unlike anything else we've ever experienced um there was the personal threat like wow could this happen to me could this happen to my parents like how bad is this going to be like there so you know like i'm i'm completely willing to say that there were moments where i was just like frozen Right. Like there was too much coming at you. You didn't know. And I think that happened to everybody. So to some degree, I think, you know, maybe for, you know, for a few minutes, you know, there was there was a little bit of hesitation there. I think the other thing that happened is that nobody. So if you think about what Buffett was really, where they really took advantage in 2008 and 2009 was providing capital to large institutions that needed it, whether that was Goldman Sachs. I think they did GE. Right. Like these were large you know, companies that have been around for hundreds of years that just needed capital for a certain reason. And Buffett got incredible terms on it. Right. No, no one was in position to do that then. Right. And so, like, I don't even think they were I don't I don't think anybody knew whether they should be calling Berkshire. Right. So it, it, it just it was it happened so quickly and so abruptly that there wasn't this like, you know, in 2009, there was there was this rolling, like okay, it starts with Merrill and then Lehman, and then there was this this crescendo after that. But there was this period of time where, you know, there like you had a little bit of like forewarning in some ways. This didn't have that. So I think to some degree, no one was going to sell their business to Buffett in March, right? Like they're looking for whales, so he wants to put whatever twenty billion dollars or thirty billion dollars to work. No one's going to sell at the bottom in March. Um, and then I also think that no one really knew how much capital they were going to need. And so there wasn't that that first call to Berkshire, like, okay, hey, we need to do a convert, you know, at 10% interest rate. And, you know, it's, you know, struck right, you know, at at the bottom, right? Like that's what you want. And I don't think they were getting that, that call. Um, So I I think the answer your question more specifically, I think there was obviously some personal potentially some personal like hesitation about what you should be investing in. And then secondly, you know, there wasn't enough time during that period for Berkshire to get the call they usually get.
0: Absolutely. All right, I think I think that's a good place to, because I, I, I there's a couple more topics I want to get to before we uh, you know I sure. let you go for the day, um, but uh, definitely go check. Listen, I, I I think you've talked about this a little bit too on on some of your blog. On some of your posts as well, so I invite everybody to go on to Coast Street website, and check it out. Um, real quick, have to ask about this. You know, um, you you have a section on your website dedicated to the G of ESG. You know, so I was just curious. You know, why why are you, what why did you highlight this aspect of ESG, and and can you explain why governance is the most important if that's the implication?
1: So. Um, We're not ESG investors, right? I mean, this ESG is a, you know, a a clearly a growing trend and people who are focused on that raise money based on just that we've been governance oriented investors since day one. Right. So that that's been our focus is like who's running the business. How are they incentivized? How's the structure of the, of the company? Um, And so um, uh, my, my personal feeling is that Ian there's no ENS without G governance is the like you're not going to think about the environment or you're not going to think about you know social sustainability if it's if, if you don't have the right people at the top. So our framework is let's start to let's start with corporate governance and make sure that you have people who are aligned with shareholders, who are incented to do the things that share that, that that create value for the shareholders and the rest of their sh- stakeholders. Um and um that process. So why is it so important? That process is long and arduous and at times confusing and contradictory, but it's a process that we feel like we have to go through because if you're going to partner with someone for a three to five year period or an ideally forever, right, with some of these Buffett businesses, you really want to understand the people that that you're partnering with. Um, So um, the, the reason we highlight it is not to you know, put it in a marketing deck and say, well, look at, look, you know, we're, we we're investors, you know, that that's, that's not our, our primary focus, but we are focused on corporate corporate governance. And it's been, you know, it, it's basically in the DNA of this firm. So if you look at how that manifests itself um, one in our process, there's a lot of diligence around management. It's, you know, it starts with a proxy statement, but then it goes to, to former employees. It goes to, um, you know scrutinizing m a capital allocation looking at how returns have trended over time i mean for any of your um your listeners who are interested um I, I teach a class at ucla on corporate governance ucla has an undergraduate value investing program and i teach a class on corporate governance um you know the, the main focuses there are, are assessing management and, and understanding the proxy statement
0: man so, i'm gonna i'm dropping it on that one
1: yeah. So, I mean, we, we have a slide deck, uh, um, that which I'd be happy to send to anybody, but also it's on our website, um, that which is what I present to these students. And it's basically our checklist of what we go through as we, as we're evaluating management. And um, I think there's something like 60 or 65 slides. And that's, you know, and if your first impression is, wow, that sounds like a lot, mm-hmm. right? Like if I, if I think about you know what? Do if I read the Wall Street Journal or I listen, you know, listen to CNBC, what are people always talking about? They're talking about the valuation and they're talking about the business, right? The people are always almost an afterthought. But if you listen to what Buffett says about how important the Berkshire managers are, it start. You'll start to say to yourself, well, clearly the Oracle thinks that people are really, really important. Maybe I should start focusing on that. Um, and so, and, and I'm sorry if if you've heard if anybody's heard the story. Um, before and and other venues where I've talked about it, but I I, I do think it's really important is that, so there's a slide that I have and the picture of an ostrich with his head in the sand. Um, And I say to the students, don't be the ostrich. Just because it's really hard to properly assess management and understand their incentives and be able to have any sense of what they're going to do in the future, just because it's really hard doesn't mean you can ignore it. You can't put your head in the sand. You just have to do the work. Um, and, and be okay with not ever knowing for sure, right? There's no certainty here. People change, people are biased, right? Just like we talked about why there's always an opportunity for investors like us is people have biases and they'll change and, and the world changes. And so, you know, it's a dynamic situation and it's not just a, you do it once and you're done. You have to consistently and, and constantly assess the, your, the partners who, who you're working with. Um, but to, But to take it away is like, you, I think, the 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 outcome of focusing so much on people and having a diligent process and a deep process of evaluating management is that you avoid mistakes, right? That's what we're trying to do, right? Avoid mistakes and let your winners take care of themselves, right? And so, if you think about the mistakes that that people make in investing, right, well, easier said wrong- than done, right? <laughs> yeah, you can, you can pay the wrong price, right? That you can control to some degree, but you can pay the wrong price you can be wrong about the business. You can think it's a buffet, It's actually a gram or re- worse. Um, or you can be wrong about the people. Um, and so um, if, you, if you're willing to do the work to make sure that you're investing with people with integrity, who understand capital allocation, who are aligned with shareholders, who have some form of stakeholder framework as well. It's not just all shareholders, shareholders all the time to the, to the, you know, to the detriment of all of our other stakeholders, I think you can avoid mistakes. Um, and so if you, if the rest of your portfolio is a bunch of businesses um, that are getting more valuable every day and you avoid the mistakes associated with investing with bad people, that gives you an opportunity to outperform. Um, and, you know, I think if you, if you just think about, I mean, if I just think about, you know, Cove Street and, and, and the mistakes we've made a lot of them about, about people. So it's not foolproof, right? You, you think that someone, you know, someone's got the copy of Thorndike's outsiders on their desk, right. And they they talk the talk and they, they, you know, they talk about capital allocation, like they've got it down and then they make a, they make a terrible acquisition and it ruins, it ruins a good business that can happen. And so it, it certainly isn't foolproof, but you want people to have, you know, I think of this as like the right software, right? Like, you're never going to be able to assess their hardware but their software is like you know is like how they think about the world um and 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 if you can find people who are aligned with that you know i think you've got a better chance of outperforming and and, and having a portfolio that consistently gets more valuable all right so we're we're near the end of the interview here so i i wanted to
0: get in my my favorite question before we sure. wrap up what investing experience would you say has impacted you the most in your career
1: yeah i mean i think a lot of my own evolution as an investor um, was catalyzed um, after making mistakes in smaller companies. Um, so, you know, I think this is really relevant to your, your you know, the people who, who listen to this podcast in the sense that, you know, as I said, small and micro investing it's evergreen the opportunity the opportunity is evergreen there are thousands of companies people don't pay attention to them they're illiquid they're you know they just came out of bankruptcy there's a million reasons why they could be undervalued so in terms of inefficiency you find that you know in spades in small cap and you don't find that in large cap value it's just it's just just a fact right and so that the opportunity is always there but there's also a number of risks associated with smaller companies right and so um i think just historically we found that you just don't quite get the caliber of management that you get as you know, with a hundred million dollar microcap versus a, you know, a $7 billion company, you know, and that's not just, that's not just CEO. That's, you know, that's, you know, layers down, that's VPs, that's processes, systems, ERP, right? Like just the whole structure that, that comes with management decision-making isn't quite as robust. Um, and so, you know, I think we've, we and saying me we have made mistakes in businesses that either had customer concentration or the total addressable market was just, you know, not, not what not was just like one end market or, or one country and they didn't have diversification required. So I always say it this way, like the, the losing money in some smaller businesses taught me you need to invest in a business that can take a punch, right? And, and so most large businesses, so if I'm a multi-seg- multi-segment, multi segment multinational, you know, with, with $12 billion in revenue, if one of my segments is down 30% in the quarter, unless I'm 10 times levered, I'm probably not going bankrupt, right? But if I'm a, you know, a $40 million revenue business that's tied to one customer or, or, or you know, has 80% with one customer and that customer walks away, well, you you, you don't have a leg to stand on after that. And so, you know, I, I'm you know, I'm I'm not talking about any concrete examples, but I'm just saying is like invest in businesses that can take a punch. And so that means they have a balance sheet that can survive, that means they have a diversity of earnings that can that can survive, and they have a management team that's flexible enough to survive if you take a punch. And so th- that concept of um, you know just just survivability and um, you know, the magnitude of, 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 you know, like what magnitude earthquake can you actually survive um, has led me to focus on better businesses and slightly larger businesses. And so th- this is not, this is certainly not a reason not to look at smaller businesses, it, but it is, I think, a reason to be very judicious and careful about like the kind of businesses you'll invest in, you know, as they, you know, as, as, as just by definition, smaller companies have you know a smaller total addressable market or they just don't have as many you know they may not have in any international businesses or they're only one segment or they have a customer concentration just be careful there um, and if it's and if you're coming up with a bunch of businesses that have all of those exposures put them put them to the side and and, and be patient and look for better businesses
0: I want to give a standing ovation, but I think I, I I don't want to piss off everybody who's just listening to the audio version of this. But uh, Ben, I think we're there, man. Let's. Uh, where can go people go and find everything they need to know about you, Cove Street Capital? Do you do you have a, you have a Twitter handle, right? I think you do.
1: I, I or no? you know. Toby made fun of me because I after I did my interview with Toby, I I tweeted for the first time in five years, and he's like, "Wow, pretty active there." You know, Twitter's <laughs> not my uh, not my thing, but uh dot we have a thought section on our blog. We're pretty active there. Um, I've done a number of podcasts so you can hear a more about, you know, how Coast street thinks about the world. Um, you know, we're, we're pretty out there. We're an open book in a lot of ways. And, and I think, you know, we, in an, in an industry where there's especially, you know, you know, the New York hedge fund crew, which is just so secretive about what they do and how they think and what they own. Like, I, I mean, like that's a different world. I mean, we're long only, you can see what we own all the time. You can, you know, we're, we're pretty transparent about our stocks. Um, we're willing to post on our blog about our stocks. You know, we're, we're willing to talk to you about like how we approach business value people. And so, you know, we, we like, you know, for potential partners, you know, and, and clients and existing clients to, to know what we're thinking and to, to understand the frameworks we're using. So you'll see if you go to our website, um, a, a lot of information, um, you know, in our FAQ section, uh, for example, you can, you can get a list of the like really good questions we've gotten from, from potential clients and consultants, right? So like I, we're, we're pretty open and transparent. Um, and you know, we, we like to share, um, our kind of quirky culture with as many people who will, who will take it. So coast um, you'll find a lot for me and, and my, a lot of my colleagues as well. Awesome. Ben, it was an
0: absolute pleasure, man. I'm, I'm so stoked that you, uh, took time to talk with me today and, um, I look forward to seeing you maybe on the investors roundtable soon. Uh, and um,
1: yeah, you're the man, dude. I really appreciate it. appreciate it. Thanks for the time. I'd love to do it again and 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 look forward to a day where you and I can actually hang out in person. I, I mean, I can't tell you
0: how many new LA investors I've met during time of COVID. It's insane. And like, yeah, I didn't we'll even we'll know. All get
1: ha- we'll all get together and have lunch together at some point.
0: Oh, that'll be fun. That, that'll be
1: really fun. All right, brother. Looking Take care. Forward to it. Thanks. Stay safe. You all too. Right. Yeah, no, we we don't own any of the stocks that we discussed today.
0: This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned, and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast.